0: Do you have a favorite book? Some people aren't into reading, but some people maybe have a favorite
1: book. I, re- I read a few books um, by this guy Sam Sheridan that I liked, and, and one was uh, A Fighter's Mind. Yeah. And he, like, did interviews with, like, different athletes of, like, combat sports or wrestling and stuff like that and kind of dove into how they think about competing and stuff like that. Like, I'd recommend that to anybody who's, who's in MMA because yeah. um, MMA is really – it's mostly mental. I mean, definitely physical. You got to get ready for your fight and stuff. But yeah. if you if you don't have it up here, it doesn't matter how strong you are in the body. You're not gonna you're not gonna be successful.
0: Dope. So another op- episode of Adversity Kings. We've got UFC former contender, right? Yep. UFC former contender Ricardo Lamas. Am I saying that right? Yes. Okay. Awesome. How are you doing today, bro?
1: I'm doing good. How are you?
0: Doing great. Doing great. We've we've done a mini podcast before this, but uh, hopefully we can get all the information. Is that good? Yeah. Yeah. Good. All right, making sure that isn't. We were talking about uh, kicks. So we were talking about kicks, and you were talking about building up your shins. What were you saying about building up your shins?
1: Yeah, just like building up the calluses. You basically kind of like got a dead in the nerves in your shins. Yeah. I was, and I was talking about like when I, uh, when I first started training Muay Thai and stand up, I remember being with like another beginner guy. Yeah. And uh, we had shin pads on and we were like practicing check-in kicks. It's basically where you block the kick with kind of the mid portion of your shin. Yeah. And even both of us wearing shin pads on, we were like, ah, you know, like every third one. So it just takes, it takes years of just constant, you know, hitting the bag, hundred kicks every day, tapping the bag, and you basically just kind of deaden up the nerves and yeah. build calluses kind of over the bone, and your shins get tougher and harder. And now, like, yeah, you know, you could, you could. <laughs>
0: the kids that the kids that grew up really riding the scooters, though, they probably have an advantage if they ever try to get into fighting. Oh yeah, you ever, kind of you fall, could, yeah, get a yeah. Scooter ever swing here. around and fuck yeah, your yeah. shit yeah. up. <laughs> so, um, we were talking about a bunch of different shit, but I was thinking of. Uh, uh, we were talking about John Jones and Francis Ngannou. Yeah, and uh, I believe his intentions are to fight Francis, or or to get into the heavyweight division. The heavyweight division. I look think for his new challenge.
1: Yeah, I think his first fight might be against Stepe. Is kind of some rumblings I've been hearing, okay. but yeah, he's definitely. They've been trying to get that Ngannou fight. I think they're. He's just asking for a ridiculous amount of money to fight Ngannou, which you know, it's a huge fight. So yeah. uh, they, they're going to have to pay out to get those two to fight each other for sure. And then one
0: thing I was also curious about is I've heard, I don't know if you follow the Paul brothers at all, but I've heard yeah. like Jake Paul, you know, talk about, you know, trying to, I don't know if he's trying to get under data skin, but like, like more benefits for fighters. I always wonder, cause I know being in business myself, like you know, people might see all this money coming in, but there's a profit margin there. I got taxes. I got expenses. You know, we we'll pay for this building. We pay for this studio. There's, there's a, even though like a lot comes in, a lot goes out. When you're a fighter, you're, you're a business owner. You are your, your business. Yes. You got a corner you pay. Uh, do you, do you get taxed in the state you live in and then the state you fight in? Like,
1: um, sometimes. Yeah. Uh, depending on what state, you fight in, you could get taxed from that state, and then you have to pay the taxes uh, of the salary that you receive because we're not employees; we're technically independent contractors. So there isn't benefits. There's there's no benefits. No, they they had like a, um, and it wasn't always, but they they brought in kind of a medical insurance for us. Yeah. So, but it would only cover us for incidents that occurred during training or at the fight itself. So if like we were in training camp and we hurt ourselves, we'd call the UFC, they'd set it up and they'd kind of take care of it. Yeah. But if we were like, Oh, I got a cold. I got to go see a doctor that that's something that it wouldn't cover. You know,
0: I would say the fighting probably has to be the most detrimental sport to, to the body. But I mean, especially when you get into like the UFC and I look at some of these, some of these fighters where it's like years down the road, it's like, there should be in my mind it makes sense where, you know, Jake Paul and everybody, these these guys are talking about like like there should be a pension or yeah. something. Is something in place where it's just like more protective or something to kind of contribute and give back. Cause once you cut everything down after these big fights and things, it's, there's a, there's a lot that has to go out. You know what I mean? You got coaches, corners, this, that, the other, you know what I mean? Then you got a family you're trying to build whatever it might be and live your life and eat and this, that, whatever it might be. Yeah.
1: And not only stuff that has to go out after the fight, but stuff that has to go in before the fight even happens. Like, yeah. uh, in my case, I, I live here in Illinois, but I would train down in Miami for Uh, my fights. So that costs money, right. To, to do that. It's not free. Um, and I'm not the only fighter that does that. I think it's, it's pretty common for other fighters to travel, either if they're, if they're trying to train at a big camp, like an ATT or something, but they don't live in Florida, they have to travel down and and they have to pay their way. And, you know, I had to rent a place. I had to pay for flight. I had to rent a car if I didn't drive my car. Um, and you know, there's a lot of expenses that go into that. And then on the other end, you have to pay out, you know, you got to give a percentage to your gym, to your corners. Um, you got to pay taxes and it's, there's, you know, whatever you're getting paid, you're only kind of taking home a fraction of that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. What inspired you to get into fighting?
1: Um, it's something that I wanted to do since I was a kid, pretty much. Um, I was the youngest of six boys fighting in my house was kind of a normal thing growing up with my older brothers. Um, and me being the youngest, I'd reserve, I'd, uh, received the brunt of all the beatings. Uh, and I remember when it comes to the UFC, so I was about 11 years old and one of my older brothers brought home a VHS tape and it was like the third event that the UFC ever put on UFC three. And this was back when it was no holds barred, no gloves, no weight classes, basically no rules. And, um, he came home and I watched it and I was like, I was hooked because at that time, like I said, there were no weight classes, but this guy Hoist Gracie, who was, you know, a littler dude, maybe 180 pounds yeah. was whooping up on everybody, you know, even the big, big, strong dudes. And as a little kid, I was always like one of the smallest in my classes growing up that appealed to me, right. That this yeah. little guy could beat all these bigger guys. So, um, I really kind of set it in the back of my head that I wanted to do that one day and you know even through high school i remember like uh friends would come over we'd be like lifting in my basement watching like ufc and i tell them that they'd see me in there one day so it was something i always had in the back of my mind and um when i hit high school i started well even before high school i started doing martial arts because i was a huge fan of bruce lee growing up he was like an idol of mine so i started doing taekwondo around 10 years old did that for a couple years then when i hit high school i started wrestling really fell in love with that sport and did that through college. And then, um, the year after I graduated, I stayed on, I wrestled at Elmer's college over here and the year I graduated, I stayed on as an assistant coach because I just, you know, was, didn't want to leave the sport yet. And I just remember kind of being on the sidelines, coaching the wrestlers, but still having that desire inside me to compete, um, So after about a year of coaching, I was like, you know, I can't, I get, I'm not done yet. I need to keep competing. So at that time I was working at the park district in Oak Brook. And there was another trainer there who had a boxing and Muay Thai background. So I talked to him and told him about how, you know, I wanted to try MMA. And he's like, well, you know, why don't you come by? At that time he was branching off and kind of opening up his own little spot. And he's like, why don't you come by my gym and you can learn a little bit of the stand up game. So I started going over there. He, uh, I was going for two weeks and basically knew how to throw like a jab cross hook. And he's like, I got you a fight next Wednesday. I was like, what? So he like threw me into a boxing fight just to see if, just to see if I had the balls to do it. Yeah, I did. I lost a decision, but like he knew that I was serious about it. So we just kind of built from there. Um, I did a couple more boxing fights and I was like, yo, enough with the boxing. I want to do MMA. So then we finally set it. And, um, I was the first guy out of his gym to, to fight MMA.
0: Wow. And what was his name again?
1: Uh his name was Mac Ramos and uh his gym is called Top Notch and they're over in Villa Park now. Are you still cool with him? Uh, I'm still cool with him. Yeah, we don't uh I don't really train I don't train over there anymore. Yep. You know, towards the end of my career, I just kind of we kind of went separate ways.
0: Yeah. So, who do you think was the most influential person in your life growing up?
1: Um my dad,
0: 100%. And why is that?
1: Um just because when it comes to like a father figure and and someone who would do anything for their kids my dad like was that guy um he he gave us everything that we needed you know he tried to give us everything that we wanted and he's uh he's a man of 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 tremendous morals i would say um and just looking up to him the stuff that that he went through in his life and came to this country with basically nothing and built himself up to a successful man a successful businessman uh had a great family you know um and just uh, talking about somebody w- with heart and like just fight in him i think like i get it from him i've just seen him in altercations and situations where like a normal person would be like okay this is dangerous I'm i'm gonna leave this alone but he's just he just like head-on like just like a bull like a bull exactly
0: now from cuba
1: From Cuba. Yeah.
0: Now your mom also?
1: My mom, uh, was born in Mexico. Born in Mexico. Yep. Where'd they meet? They met here in Chicago. My dad was a disc jockey, um, on a little radio station and my, it was actually my mom's friend would listen to my dad. She like had a crush on my dad. So she listened to a show all the time. Yeah. And when my mom would go over to her house, they would like call in all the time and like, you know, uh, ask requests for songs or whatever. And, uh, Eventually, through that, he started talking to my mom and said, "Hey, you know, I'd like to meet." And and he said he had some book or something that he wanted to give her, so he kind of used that as the excuse, and then yeah. they, they met up that way.
0: What was the book? Was it a good book? I love books. I,
1: I don't even I don't remember which book it was, but yeah. um, I think he was just using it as an excuse. Yeah, so. just an excuse. <laughs> yeah.
0: Now, I I only really got to see just a m- brief portion of the the Tim cast, but I remember reading in the title the the was it the Escape from Castro? Yes, so what exactly happened in regard to Castro, Cuba? How did that affect your
1: dad? So my dad, my dad was born in 1940. In 1940, Cuba was a free democratic country. Um, later on, in the later 40s, uh, later 40s, maybe early 50s, it, it was. Um, it came under a dictator a dictatorship through a man named Fulgencio Batista, who was actually an elected president before, and then after his term was over he held office, he kind of threw a coup d'etat, so he, uh, he, he seized power um, through military force. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of interrupted the democratic flow of, of uh, the government in Cuba. So Fidel used that as an excuse to start his revolution. So his revolution was all about, you know, according to him, he was going to give power back to the people, he was going to make uh, Cuba a free country again, and really hiding his, uh, his, his communist ties. Um, you know, even when he was asked about it early in the revolution, he says, you know, uh, we're not red, you know, the, the color of the revolution isn't red, red meaning, you know, like communist. And, um, he just kept talking about freedom. He kept saying that he would hold free elections 18 months after, as soon as he came into power, he said he was going to hold free elections 18 months later. Um, when asked why wait 18 months, he was like, because if we do them now, I'll win. Everybody loves me. You know, I'm going to win the election. 62 years past, there was never one free election made in Cuba. So people started to catch wind of this after he, he came into power. My dad was one of those people where a lot of people in the beginning kind of supported Fidel because of his promises to, to give the power back to the people, you know, to get rid of the dictatorship and stuff. Um, Castro and his army were up in this mountain range called La Sierra Maestra in Cuba. That's where they kind of hid out during the revolution. They had like their base up there. And my dad actually went up there to help out as a volunteer um, to help teach. Uh, They had, you know, a lot of farmers kind of as soldiers and stuff. And he went up as a volunteer to help teach the farmers how to read and write because a lot of them were illiterate. And when he was up there, he saw things that made him think twice about the revolution in Castro. He was actually asked to leave. He got kicked out. Um, And then when he came back down, uh, that's when he he kind of – you know flip sides and he joined an underground movement that was called the uh, Frank País 30th of November movement and my father was the national head of the student sector of that movement and he was in charge of propaganda so he they would like make newspapers speaking out against the government they'd go out uh at these like little organized um things and you know kind of like hand out flyers to people or or do whatever there there was a bunch of stuff that they would do um, But at some point, you know, a lot of the stuff that my father did because he was involved in propaganda was nonviolent, right? It was kind of speaking out against the government. But at some point, when you want to remove a dictator, it it has to come through force, right? Like they say, you vote vote your way into communism, but you shoot your way out. So there were a lot of different underground groups that were kind of opposing the revolution. um, And their plan was to kind of come together at some point and throw this counter-revolution. So this point was coming up and at one point my father was involved in an incident uh where he decided to leave um he was involved in an incident where a friend of his he actually shot a friend of his uh, by accident when they were trying to kind of commandeer this taxi for this operation that they were doing and there was a shootout that happened the t- taxi driver had a gun a shootout happened and my, my my dad's friend had him getting shot my dad you know obviously felt horrible about it. That he didn't die or anything, but uh, so after that, my, my father decided to stop fighting the revolution and decided to kind of escape Cuba. So he, he went to the Brazilian embassy where he stayed there for about like six months and then um, boarded a plane, I believe, to Puerto Rico and then from Puerto Rico to the United States where his older brother was living here in Chicago at the time. Uh so that's how he made it here. But right before he left, right before he entered the the embassy, he met with uh one of his friends, uh, whose name was Luis Samuel Sanchez Carpente. And this guy was my dad's second in command in their underground group. So if my dad like think, you know, if my dad was a president, this was like the vice president. Before he left, he was like, Um, you know, I'm leaving. Uh he had all the files that they had kind of acquired of like all the little missions that they did or whatever, any info that they had acquired through their through their group, and he handed it to him, and basically it was like, he's in charge now, you know. Yeah. And then my dad went to the embassy. Now remember, I told you that they were working for this kind of counter revolution. Before yeah. my dad left, there was this guy claiming that he had access to all these guns, even like a tank and like all this stuff, right? And uh, some people like didn't know if they if they trusted him, because at that time, you know how I said that there are a bunch of different groups. Yeah. Nobody knew who to trust because Castro had infiltrators all over the place. Right? Like there are people with the revolution that were infiltrating these smaller, smaller groups. So they planned this attack. The night before the attack was supposed to happen, everybody was arrested. Everybody that was involved. My, my father's second in command was arrested he was arrested, and it was 22 days that they they caught him, they charged him, they tried him, they sentenced him, and then they sent him to the firing squads. 22 days it took. So if my dad wouldn't have left at that time, that would have been my dad in his place, getting sent to the firing squad. So um, after my dad left, you know, he, ever you know, ever since the day he set foot in America, he's kind of continued that fight. Um, And to him, you know, it's something that he can't leave because otherwise the sacrifices of all his friends and all the people, you know, that gave their lives would basically be for nothing. So uh, to this day, he's still involved. He has a uh, he's a president of a Cuban civic committee here in Chicago. That's kind of a committee um, made up of exiles from Cuba and they hold events like throughout the year and they raise money and they'll send it to dissidents in Cuba and other groups that are opposing the regime. Um, and so I kind of get involved and try and help them out with that as much as I can. Also,
0: what's the state of Cuba now?
1: The the state of Cuba now is they're they're still under kind of that, that Castro dictatorship. Although Castro passed away, he transferred power to his brother, Raul, who then transferred power to the new acting president who's named, um, uh, Diaz-Canel, Miguel Diaz-Canel. Uh, so right now the, the people are still being oppressed. I mean, there was, uh, right around the time of my last fight in 2020, that summer, I thought I saw videos. There were there were these yeah there were these protests that started ha- that never really it never happened before. Like people were not going out in the streets and protesting. So a lot of these people were were going out. they were protesting the government and um, other countries tried to make it seem like they were they were asking for aid because of COVID, but they're not. They're going through the streets shouting out freedom. You know, it's got nothing. It had nothing to do with with COVID or or medical aid for vaccines or anything like that. Um, and the government was uh, the government of Cuba was really doing their best to shut that down. They would cut they would cut power so that everybody's internet service was gone so that, you know, the the people of Cuba who were out protesting couldn't be making videos and getting it out there. So they were trying to suppress everything that was coming out of the island. Um, and they're still kind of in a state of of unrest right now. I believe that there's you know not as many protests as there were back then in that summer, but there's still people that are going out and, and trying to do their best. But I mean, the regime did a good job of, of arresting all the people who are kind of leading these groups and leading these protests. And a lot of them, we still don't know where they are or what happened to them. You know, they're they're basically kidnapped by the government and either, I don't know if they're killed or if they're still rotting away in prison somewhere or what.
0: So, Cuba's been under communism for eighty years since the. 40s? Since
1: nineteen fifty nine. Since nineteen fifty nine. Well, it's a, it's a Castro took over in nineteen fifty nine. Okay. Um, Batista, I'm not sure. I'm not exactly sure about the year. It was the late forties or the early fifties when when Batista took over, which he was also a dictator, but unlike Castro, he kind of left some of those freedoms alone. He was still a dictator, but like he didn't mess with the freedom of the press. Like the press were still able to kind of do what they wanted. Castro came in, controlled everything. Yeah. So.
0: So has Cuba ever experienced like peaceful time? Did your, did your dad's dad, like, were there stories of like.
1: Yeah. Like I said, when, when my dad was, my dad was born in 1940. At that time, Cuba had their independence. They were a a democratic country. They held free elections. Like I said, Batista was actually an elected president. Okay. And then, you know, wanting to keep power. He, he seized it through a coup d'etat and, and, you know, that's when kind of everything changed in Cuba.
0: Now, do you guys ever go back and visit Cuba? Or I've it-
1: never, I've never been. My dad, you know, my dad, when he left, he 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 kind of made a promise to himself that the next time he would set foot in Cuba would be in in a free Cuba. Yeah, and he also sees it as, as like for him to go back there, he would have to ask permission from the regime to go back to his own country and that's something that he he's never willing to do he says so yeah for me I would love to go back obviously and see where my dad grew up and my you know my grandfather is buried there and yeah um other relatives of mine and uh I would love to but it would kind of be just like a slap in the face to him if I were to just go over there and
0: absolutely do you think there will be a free Cuba in
1: I'm I'm hoping so um you know, it, it right now it, it kind of depends on on the people of Cuba. There's not much that anybody else can do. They have to find it within themselves. Yeah. And obviously, you know, like I said, I I I try to help my dad in those efforts to to raise money and send it to Cuban dissidents. So after my last fight, um, I kind of gave a speech at the end of my fight, um, kind of dedicating it to to the people of Cuba and kind of encouraging them to unite and and keep fighting for their freedom and after my fight, I did a little project where I, I made a bunch of t-shirts. I was really condemning the regime. It was basically a, a picture of me pissing on Fidel Castro's grave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I was selling it and we were donating all the profits to, uh, to different groups down there and sending it to also like, uh, some dissidents that were trying to leave. We helped one guy get out, yeah. um, of Cuba. So, um, trying to do my part, uh, as much as I can. Now,
0: did Castro naturally die, or was he... Yeah, I,
1: no, I think he naturally... He was just old. He was really old. I think he died of... Damn. I, I mean, they, they don't really say, yeah. you know. He he was old. He got sick. He was in yeah. the hospital for a while, and then one day he was just gone. Just gone.
0: So, one of my favorite movies growing up was, was uh, Scarface. Right behind you.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite movies, too.
0: And so... And and <laughs> I always really love the opening. You know what the, I mean? And that,
1: that really... That's you know, actual footage of, of the Mariel boat lift. Like they took real footage from, so I don't know. I don't know. Are you familiar with the Mariel boat lift no. or what happened? So, you know, it was around the same time. I think it was 1980 or 79 or 1980. And, um, basically a lot of people wanted to leave Cuba. Um, and Fidel just said, okay, you guys want to leave? Go." So he opened up the ports and, and allowed for a certain amount of boats to leave. Um, along with the, some of the people that left he also kind of let prisoners go like out of jail and not all of them were good people yeah. you know like that's so that's how tony got here you know in yeah. the movie he was he was in jail and uh so yeah the Mario boat lift was just an opportunity for uh, s- s- a lot of those cubans to leave the island and you know a lot of cuban americans uh they can you know they got here their family got here from that boat lift. yeah so
0: it's nuts. It's a great, great opening. Right? It is a great opening. Great movie opening. scenes. And and as a kid, I was like, oh, I don't understand. But as, as, the more I watched it, it was like he just starts – and like some of the scenes I remember were like these communist cockroaches or something. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? And he gets very passionate yeah. about it. I'm like – and then the more I understood, I was like, that would fucking suck. That would yeah. be absolutely horrible. And and then I think – and I kind of related like now to almost like a form of empathy of being able to speak to somebody, you know what I mean, that's had family and, and friends and been directly – affected and impacted by it. And I kind of think to myself, it's kind of like, you know, now kind of looking at our world, you know, I, I don't, you know, fingers crossed and knock on wood or, you know, never hope America's under communism, but with, you know, some of the decisions that, that we think we're making to make our country safer, or yes. better. And like kind of just pacifying everything. Does your dad ever think like, You know what I mean? Like oh, Oh, he hates
1: he hates the Democrats. Like (laughs) (laughs) hates. And I think most Cuban Americans do. Yeah, they're very Republican. A lot of a lot of uh, because they
0: know what like the signs.
1: They know the signs exactly. They know what it's like. They've seen it before, and you know that that's the thing. Is like a lot of these. I think like this younger generation. They're kind of enamored with that thought of like. a a communist society and, and the idea of true communism is a beautiful idea, right? Everybody's equal. We all have the same thing, but when it's, when it's put into practice, it doesn't work. It breeds, it, it breeds laziness, you know, and you know, it's just, why would you go do that extra mile if you're not going to get anything more? You know what I mean? It's just, and then I don't know, man, it's, it's, uh, how do I say this? Um, every other country, you just look in history, right? All the Latin American countries that have accepted communism are all very poor now. Yeah. Everybody that lives in the country is very poor now. It's like, what do you want to be? You want to, okay, we're all going to be poor or you can work to be successful. Yep. You know what I mean? It's a It's a simple question like that. Because the only thing that communism brings is misery, hunger, death, yeah. and and Worst of all, civil pain. unrest, yes, and pain. Just look around you We're in recent history where communism is, has gone to.
0: I was talking to somebody the other day. I was like, I think what would be worse than dying would be watching those you care about around you be oppressed and suppressed yeah. and have absolutely no freedom, no choices, stripped down to nothing and humiliated. So I could... I could see, like, you know, like, your dad was like, I ain't going back there unless it's a free free yeah. cube. It's like to know your friends and your family and the people that – when when you bleed with people and sweat with – that's what I love about jiu-jitsu and, like, fighting. There's no greater way, I think, to bond with somebody than to, like, sweat and bleed yeah. with somebody and to shed tears and, and go through, like, I like to say the trenches. You know whether It's that a cleansing.
1: Your, it's a cleansing almost, you know. And dude. Even, like, guys that you fight with, even if you uh, – if you have like an unfriendly build up to the fight yep. like you see every guy afterwards what do they always do you know what i mean for the most part i know, i'm sure there yeah. are some grudges that stay yeah, that stay grudged stay after the fight yep. but for the most part you see guys like hug each other and yep. it's it's like going it's almost like uh you know going to war alongside somebody like yeah. if you're in the military or something Absolutely. it's it's like it's weird but it's like a, a you create a bond in there with each other
0: and what gives me hope is I feel like there, there's, I feel like we have an, an enough uh, diversification in our country where we've got so many people with different backgrounds of they've, I feel like they've experienced the effects of communism and just broken nations and countries through immigration through their parents whether that be directly or through themselves directly or indirectly, where it's like we throw that mix in there and then that kind of helps rally our cause and our fight against you know. I, I always tell people, look, I don't really have any type of political association. I just like a free free and and uh, ultimately just a free country where humans are, are safe. You know what I mean? Yeah. Just just be safe and mind your own business. You, you know, Joe wants a gun, let Joe have a gun. You know yeah. what I mean? Mary wants to do this, that, whatever. Go ahead. That's fine. You know what I mean? Just don't kill each other. Right. You know, which probably sounds absolutely asinine, but when I break it down, I'm like, if we're free, you know what I mean, and, and you're able to do what it is you desire to do, I don't see you know, why, why there shouldn't be any issues. But I think of different immigrants that have come from backgrounds of like, I think of like breathing, you know what I mean? You don't appreciate breathing through a clear airway until you've had a stuffed nose. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, you don't appreciate your freedom until you have no freedom. Yes. And then you start to see the signs and we have different people in our nation, like your dad, where they're like, you don't want, you don't want that. (laughs) Yes. You you don't want what you think you're asking for. You know, and I think it's like when people ask for the easy route, it kind of be like you training for a fight and just like every shortcut available. You take every shortcut. You know, I can think of shortcuts I've taken and they always cut you short. You know what I mean? We always tell people here. It's like when you get into sales, this is 100 percent commission. If you take a shortcut, it's you're going to have a short term satisfaction. You know what I mean? But when you get paid, you're going to have no satisfaction. Exactly. You're not going to get paid.
1: That's why I love sports like MMA and like wrestling where where it's a one-on-one sport and you can't really yes. rely on your teammates because that forces you to work yep. for every success that you have. And you can transfer that lesson into life, into any any part of life. Yep. Right? Cuz what you put in is what you're going to get out. So if you want to take the shortcuts, you're not going to get that full return back. But if you put in everything you can, you'll you'll get everything out of it. Absolutely.
0: So, Now, as you started to transition from – now, you wrestled at Elmhurst College, Mm -hmm. and you did well there, went to assistant, stayed there for a year, and then you got into fighting. And then when was your first – now, was your first big fight you said you were in – was it the Zufa?
1: Uh, It was the WEC. It was owned by Zufa. Zufa was the parent company that owned the UFC. And in my notes, I think – In the beginning. Now, it's uh, WMEIMG when they they sold –
0: and that was Casimir in 2010?
1: That was yeah, that was uh that was my one, two, three th- my four, my fourth fight in the WEC.
0: What was your first fight?
1: My first fight was against a guy named Bart Palashevsky, who was actually another local guy here in yeah. Illinois. Wow. He uh, trained at Jeff Curran's and Crystal Lake. Yep. Um and we we would actually before before I got the call to fight, we were both kind of uh, training at one of the same gyms. So like we'd be in a, pra- I'd never practice with him, yeah. but we'd be in a practice together. So there was this wrestling school over in, in uh, Naperville called overtime. Yeah. Jeff Kern would bring his guys over there to learn how to wrestle. Um, and that's where I was doing my jujitsu. And when I was, when I started training there, the owners of overtime kind of wanted to start their own MMA program. And they asked me to come along and, and teach yeah. kind of stand up and stuff. And so I would I would practice with them a lot, and like Jeff and those guys would be there. So Bart was uh was my first opponent in the WEC, a veteran. He was uh, I don't know if you remember the IFL, IFL was the International Fight League. Yeah, it And it was a familiar. cool concept. It was like every city had a team. Yep. And like the teams would compete against each other. So he was already like man, he was like thirty four and fourteen. So he was over forty, almost fifty fights. Wow. You know. Uh, and I had, I had five fights on my pro record. So I was going up against a a crafty veteran on four days notice. They called me. Um, it was a Tuesday and I remember, uh, I had just gotten home from work and I was going to take a nap before I had to go to the gym and train. And I woke up to a voicemail and it was my coach, like, um, give me a call back. You know, we got a good opportunity or whatever. So I call him back and he's like, Yo, we're going to fight on Saturday. I'm like, what do you mean fight on Saturday? I'm like, are you crazy? It's Tuesday right now. Like, <laughs> yeah. So uh, after he explained it to me, it was just an opportunity. I couldn't pass up. I took yeah. it. I ended up winning the fight.
0: Wow. How'd you win?
1: I won uh unanimous decision.
0: Dope. Yeah. So that was your first fight in the WEC. First fight in the WEC. How'd the other two go leading up to Casimir?
1: Um, my next one I lost, and then I won my third one. Uh, and then Casimir. The Casimir fight was when I started... Training in Miami kind of um, – I'd do, like, a month prior to the fight I'd yeah. do in Miami. And that's when it really showed because that's when I scored, like, my first, like, knockout. Not Like, he went out cold.
0: Yeah, dude, flying – I called it a flying. flying knee. Yes, flying knee. Yep. When I was watching the breakdown, they called it something different. Yeah, I mean, somebody call it like
1: a they call it like a skip knee. It's still technically like a flying, a flying knee. knee. Yeah. yeah, I
0: was like, it's flying. I mean, it's a, <laughs> it's a flying <laughs> yeah. knee. So. Yeah, and
1: we drilled that move every single day that month leading up to the fight.
0: Dude, the mouthpiece
1: went flying. Yeah,
0: that was nuts. Yeah, that was nuts. So Casimir in two thousand ten, and I had Swanson and Lamas. So you two thousand eleven uh-huh. arm triangle.
1: Yep. Yeah.
0: The arm triangle I've seen people not finish and then I've seen people like finish it like full mount, like not even having to jump off to the side and right. like even for myself, every time I try to hit it I, I jump off to the side and have to like almost work my way up. But what I noticed in the breakdown was they said you, you, you got the I'm assuming you just got your head under the arm and then off the ear, is what they said. the, the, the isn't the telephone. He was,
1: yeah, he was trying to defend with the telephone. Yeah. So in that fight what happened was in the first round First of all, that going into that fight, it was a very emotional fight for me. Um, my grandmother had passed away one week, wondering. one week before the fight. Uh, that's why I had I had like the cancer ribbons shaved in my Your head, hip,
0: and then and you were I was like, I wonder if this is his first big victory because you were emotional. No, right no, after the yeah, fight.
1: I, I broke down. I mean, it was uh, it was a very emotional week, and I was in the middle of cutting weight, and you know, like you're kind of out of oh, it when God. you're doing that, yes. so. I literally, I had to delay going out to Cal. It was in California in Anaheim. Yeah. I had to delay going out so that I could attend the services of my, of my grandmother. So I, you know, I did the wake one night, the funeral was the next day. And then I went from the cemetery to the airport to fly out for my fight, landed in Anaheim, California, got off the plane the night before the weigh-in and had to go straight to the uh, gym to cut weight. And, um, it was, yeah, it was just a real emotional fight. Was so this like, your
0: mom's mom or your dad's mom? My mom's mom. Okay.
1: Yeah. Um, And I remember the first round, I just, I like couldn't get going. You know what I mean? Like my, you could see it, like the way I enter the cage in yeah. every fight, I'm very bouncy. I like run around the cage in this fight. I just walk to my corner. I had to stand there. Like, yeah. you know, my head was somewhere else. So uh, Cub did a great job first round. He was tagging me with some stuff. And what set up my submission in the second round was in the first round, he got me in a guillotine that was super tight. I mean, it was in. And I don't know how I got out of it, but I did. Uh, so in the second round, he was fishing for the guillotine, but he was kind of out of position a little bit. So I wasn't in his guard. I was, I was off to the side, and he was reaching back for my head. So when I felt that, I, I, I kind of went up, yeah. boom, pulled it in, and, and secured up that arm triangle. Um and yeah he was trying to defend you know they call it you know using the telephone telephone yeah but uh it was in too tight yeah dude, so. that
0: that sucker was in there and and now were you so because I'm curious dad's dad he passed away in Cuba did your did your grandma on your dad's side did she pass away in Cuba too then no she
1: passed away here okay. um so when my dad was here he had two brothers one of them was living here in Chicago another okay. one was um was a political prisoner wow. for almost a decade. So just for being involved with my father's uncle they who would help Cuban up. dissidents. Yeah. They lock you up. Yeah. So he was locked away for, for the better part of a decade. And so there was like this loophole where if my grandmother would have came to the United States, she could have asked for the release of her son. Yeah. So that's basically what they did. They brought her to the U S she asked for the release of my son he, of her son. I'm sorry. Um, so he got released. He had to do, like, a work program when he was released from prison. Yep. Um, that's right around the time that my grandfather passed away. Uh, and then my grandmother passed away here in, in the States.
0: Are you close with your uncles when your dad died?
1: I, yeah, I was. Both of them have, have passed Almost. since. Okay. But uh, my dad's oldest brother, I was pretty young when he passed away. I still have uh, very good memories of him, though. Like, yeah. he'd come to visit us and stuff. And then... My dad's other brother, he was living in Miami, so every time I would go down for camp, I'd see him all the time. He'd invite me over. He'd even come to the gym to watch me train because actually in Cuba he was a a judo national champ in the brown belt division. So he loved to come watch and and see us train because I guess dope. it reminded him of his old judo days and stuff. And That's then dope. he'd invite me over for dinner and try and force feed me food when I couldn't eat. And I was,
0: <laughs> but. <laughs> is there anything unique before I get back into these fights? Unique about the Cuban culture that like stands out to you? I love food, so I don't know if there's like a plate of food or like a holiday or anything. Oh, Cuban really Cuban
1: Cuban food is is awesome. I mean, and it's not like to like if you think of. If you think of Hispanic food, a lot of people think of Mexican food and like spicy yeah. food, you know, but Cuban food isn't spicy. It's uh, it's really good. I mean, um, if, if I don't even know how to explain it, but, you know, white rice and black beans are like a staple, of the staple of the Cuban diet. And yeah. they do uh, a, a lot of good meats that kind of accompany that. But it's not spicy, you know, like their yeah. main ingredients in their cooking is is basically uh, garlic, onion and green pepper. Is so, there, do they plantains lime. also. Plantains, yes. Yeah. Now, they do is that plantains. Brazil too? Does that? Yeah. There's like, a lot. Of, a lot of Latin countries do plantains.
0: Okay. And now, is it is it Spanish speaking or is it is it Portuguese? It's Spanish. Okay. Spanish, Spanish. Cuba, Spanish. Yeah. Is there a different dialect than typical? Like, because when I when I try to speak a little bit of Spanish, you know, I'll talk. I've talked to people that are from Spain, Mexico, Cuba, and there's different yes. dialects. Yeah. Is it a different dialect than the typical, like, Mexico Spanish?
1: Um, There's different, like, slang terms. I wouldn't say, like, different dialect, but... And there's... You know, you could tell, like, if I hear somebody speaking Spanish, like a Cuban and a Mexican, I can tell the difference between... Like, if if they're not saying where they're from and they just speak... Yeah. I could tell this guy's from Mexico, this guy's from Cuba.
0: So you're bilingual?
1: Yeah.
0: Okay. Now, is Brazil Portuguese?
1: Brazil is Portuguese.
0: Okay. Okay. Because I remember I... I, uh... I was talking to a gentleman from Brazil, and I like tried to talk to him. And yeah, was like, yeah.
1: My trainers down from Miami were Brazilian, so yeah, I catch on a little bit of Brazil uh, Portuguese, also.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, in, this next fight I had down here, uh, Grice, and we actually talked about Grice. Uh huh. So, what was what was the build up to that fight? Now that was your. That was you my hit? first
1: my first fight in the UFC. First fight in the UFC. Yes. So that was in 2011. They had just they basically. UFC had bought the WEC. Yep. Um, that was when I signed on to the WEC. And uh, by 2011, they they had already merged over a bunch of weight classes. So yep. when I first signed on, the WEC actually had, I think, I believe it was, they had all the weight classes, like yeah. from 125 to heavyweight. Okay. When I got on the WEC, uh, after a couple of events, they had merged – 170 and up into the UFC already so now the only thing that was left was 125 135 145 and 155 in the WEC yeah and in 2011 they decided to merge us all in so they decided to take the lower weight classes and add them into the UFC Uh, so that was my first fight Um, I also decided to go down in weight class because in the WEC I fought at lightweight 155 pounds yeah it was always a very easy cut for me and like I would eat whatever I wanted on the weekends. I, w- I wasn't like dieting like very strictly. So I was like, you know, this is your dream now. The UFC is calling. So like we got to take this serious. So I decided to make the drop to 145 pounds, um, and make my debut there. So that was a huge fight because like, like I said, when I was younger, I tell my friends you're gonna see me in the UFC one day. Like this was this was it. You yeah. know what I mean? So it was it was really important to me. And Matt Grice was a guy who was um, a veteran of the UFC already. He had had some UFC fights. I think he got cut and then they brought him back again. Um, so this was his first fight back. Uh, and he was a tough guy. You know, uh, he was actually a really good wrestler from Oklahoma. I believe he was like a four time state champ. Um, he, he had like huge potential in college and then he like got into a car accident, I think his freshman or sophomore year where he, like, went through the windshield of the car. Wow. And that really kind of messed up the rest of his college wrestling career. Uh, but then he went to fight, and he was very successful and, and just a great guy, too. So I, I will, like, still keep in contact with him.
0: That's dope. Yeah. Now, so you, you caught him in that fight. You, caught uh-huh. him with, you stumbled him with a kick. Yeah. And then you got him with the left. Yeah. And then just pretty much finished it. Yeah. As that fight wrapped up, now your first fight win in the UFC – what, like, what were the thoughts going on in your mind? Like, what was going on? What was your plan? It was
1: just that, like, you know, all these dreams that I had as a kid basically came to fruition in that fight. Yep. You know what I mean? It's one thing to, like, go make it to the UFC. There are a lot of guys that, that can make it to the UFC, and then they'll lose two or three fights, and then they'll get cut. Yep. You know what I mean? But making it to the UFC, winning my debut, now I felt like I could call myself like a a real UFC fighter. Yes. So it was like all those dreams as a kid that I had of being in there and and fighting and winning came true right there in that moment.
0: Now the next fight I got down here is Bermudas in 2014, you finished him with a guillotine. Uh-huh. But from 2011 to 2014, what fights happened in between there? <laughs> that if you can remember
1: so i had i had uh, quite a few and and actually had my title fight in between there okay. so um after grice i fought swanson after swanson i fought uh hatsu which was a highly touted uh japanese fighter he yeah. was like a european champion he was actually offered a title fight against aldo but he told the ufc no i'd like one more before i fight for the title and they're like okay you're gonna fight Lamas. uh i ended up beating him Um, then after that, I had my first fight in my hometown in the UFC in Chicago against Eric Koch, who was uh, another former number one contender Yeah. who was set to fight Aldo. Then he got injured. That fight didn't happen. So on his comeback, they set him up with me and, uh, I TKO'd him in the second round at the United center, which was like another huge thing, you know, growing up in Chicago and being able to fight at the United center where like Michael Jordan played basketball was just huge. Uh, and then after that, I got my title fight. I dropped a decision loss to Jose Aldo. Um,
0: and that was a fight where you were like,
1: yeah, yeah, just nuts. He's good, man. He was good. Yeah. That was, that was back when he was kind of in his prime at the top of his game and just running through people. And uh, I was just being a little too tentative. You yeah. know, there's a lot riding on that fight. And, you know, when you're at that level and you're on the cusp of like being a world champion right there, you know, it's just, I couldn't flip it on for that fight.
0: Now, as you go to fight Bermudez, what was your record at that point?
1: Um, I had I had two losses on my record, um, both occurred in the WEC. Um, in the UFC, my only loss was to the champ Jose yeah. Aldo. Um, I had bounced back after that fight and actually beat one of Jose Aldo's training partners, Hakron Diaz. Okay. Uh, then I was set to fight. Dennis Bermudez, and this was another special fight to me because this was the UFC's first event in Latin America, which was in Mexico City. Wow. So leading up to that fight, they used me and some other guys to really kind of promote this event and build it up because it was a a historic event, you know, the first time they they broke into Latin America. Um, So it was really important to me being half Mexican. Also, you know, my mother, like I said, was born in Mexico. Um, And going down there and – a lot of things like i didn't know mexico city was so high in altitude they're like it's over seven thousand foot altitude in mexico city so i was kind of worried about that a little bit yeah. And but luckily uh i was just i was just on that night you know what i mean there was like yep. nothing he was doing i was countering everything i dropped him a few times did I he him.
0: shoot in for the guillotine like he shot in, and you threw he, in a
1: guillotine. he shot in after i dropped him with a jab so okay. he came in pop, I, I caught him with the a jab shot. he dropped and then just kind of, like, tried to scramble to the leg, and I got him in a front headlock and shot my guillotine in.
0: Now, when you go to shoot and someone tries to throw a guillotine on you, what, like, what's your immediate defense for that? Just, like, head up and, like, push
1: through? You, you, you have to focus on the legs. Yeah. So if they got your head, if you're fighting here and they wrap the legs around you, then you're in trouble. Yeah. But if you have my head and I'm blocking your legs from pulling guard and I hop my legs off to the opposite side of my head, then I'm safe. So a lot of people have that first resort to come here to fight the yeah. the guillotine instead of fighting the legs which is really what's going to lock you into the choke. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah.
0: So pushing on the legs. Blocking
1: blocking blocking the legs, right? Blocking the thighs. But if you went knees. in for a
0: shot like
1: If I if I go in for a shot, I'm trying to finish yeah out of your guard. Right, whether we're going straight down to the ground, I'm either throwing my legs up and over to the side, or yes. I'm lifting you and turning you to land you in side control. Okay. Right. Yeah. So if I mean there, there's other ways you can kind of escape guillotines too in full guard, and they're not fun. I mean, you don't, I don't ever want to be in there. But uh, I mean, if somebody has guillotine and wraps wraps legs around you, you could. There's a good defense that I use up against the cage where I'm kind of smashing them into the cage and and taking that angle away for them to get the choke. Yeah. Um, you could roll to your side with your head on top and then start framing off the knees to make your hips escape out of their guard. Yeah. You know, uh, there's, there's a lot of stuff. This,
0: I find when I, when I, uh, go against these, you know, these guys down at 10 planet, I feel like the blast double is the best thing for me to just go. Keeping the like head in the middle. Keep yeah. that head in the middle. They don't, they don't really like try to throw the guillotine yep. in there and I'm coming with enough force to. Yep.
1: Or just stick with a single leg head on the inside.
0: Head on the inside. Single yeah. leg,
1: And don't, and keep their leg in between yours. Leg Don't let hand. them wrap that leg on the outside.
0: Do you like ankle picks?
1: Um, I do. In in wrestling, I was a huge low level guy. Yeah. I'd always shoot low singles, which is kind of similar to an ankle. You're attacking yep. the ankle. Yeah. Um, in and M- just MMA, and swinging around basically. Right. In MMA, they're a little harder to pull off because there's no shoe to grab onto, and yeah. their their foot could slip. You know, you could just turn and pull your foot out pretty yep. easily. But, uh, you know, uh, Randy Couture, when he fought um, James Tony. Okay. You know the boxer, yes, James Tony? Yeah, yeah. He he went low level on him right away. Took him down and then and then pounded him. Damn, that was like the only low level I've seen in the UFC.
0: Damn, <laughs> that's crazy. It uh super. I want to before I get to the next fight. Super ducks. Super ducks. Yeah, you ever hit any of those? You like those?
1: Uh, that was my move. That you was do? my move. Yeah. So and it wasn't a typical a super duck. You have one hand on the floor and you windmill out with the other hand. Yeah, the way I was taught. um, there was this guy that went to my high school, Pat Cork. He was a uh, runner-up at University of Illinois at the okay. national tournament. He took So he took second at nationals, and he actually lost to Mark Munoz, who was another UFC yes. fighter. Um, he taught me – he called it a misdirection double. So it's it's almost the same form as a super duck, but you don't put your hand on the floor. You you reach for their leg, So you act like you're coming in, you're yeah. shooting a single leg on this side, and then you misdirect and you windmill out on the other side, and you end up in a double leg.
0: How important is that windmill in there?
1: Very important because you're you're baiting them in to hook your arm, right? If somebody shoots in, if somebody shoots in with their arm up like this, yeah. the natural reaction is to try and doubt like catch the underhook, right? Yeah. As they're shooting in, so when they're going like this and you windmill out and they miss your arm, then as they're sprawling they go flat to the mat and you can end up like right behind them.
0: It makes sense. I feel like I try like. Like a hybrid, horrible, <laughs> slot, horrible. I'm like, you're talking about the Mermelo, and I'm like, I'm definitely fucking a women. <laughs> yeah, was, you got you got to
1: hit yourself in the butt with the back of your hand. Okay,
0: that makes That's a lot more sense. That's kind of the secret to it. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. So we go into guillotine Bermudez, and then into this one I was really excited to talk about. 2016, you guillotine Charles Oliveira, who's currently – the uh, champion,
1: lightweight champ. His
0: yeah. the lightweight
1: champ. So. Yeah. And I technically fought him at lightweight because he blew weight by nine pounds in wow. that fight. So we were we were set. This was another. Actually, <clears throat> I don't even know if I was gonna fight right because um, before I was set to fight Charles, I was supposed to fight BJ Penn in the Philippines yeah. as a main event. BJ got injured, pulled out of the fight, and then the UFC decided to cancel the entire event like the even I I went out to the Philippines I did promo for the fight with BJ you know we did our face off and and all that stuff. Now when stuff.
0: they do that do, there's no like compensation package of like hey you paid for this here's like a
1: I mean they pay for they pay for the trip they okay. give you like uh you know money to eat with or whatever. Yeah
0: but if you're also banking on making money from the fight too that right. it's pretty much just kind of like an F you, you know Yeah I mean?
1: it is. So they when they canceled the event, they did throw us some money. Okay. But it was nowhere funny. near. What Even I like would what have you'd made. make if you. Like what is Even it, if I would have lost. Loss. Yeah. It's my show money, they call it. You get your show money and your win bonus. Okay. So it wasn't. It, it was like a fifth of my show money, maybe. Maybe. Damn. At that point. So uh, I was set to fight him. They canceled the entire event. So I was left without a fight. I'm like, what the fuck? So they scrambled and they. Um, they put me on a card about a month later in Mexico city and they set me up with Charles Oliveira. So he, I don't think he was, he must not have been training at the time. I think he kind of took it on shorter notice. And, uh, I get out to Mexico first night. I'm in the sauna cutting weight. He's in the sauna cutting weight. He doesn't look like he's dying or anything, you know? And then weigh-ins come and, uh, Reed Harris, who was, he was the president of the WEC. And then when they merged, they kind of brought him in as an employee and he was in charge of, uh, all of like the foreign events, kind of, I guess, yeah. the international events. So he came up to me. I had already weighed in. I made weight. I'm, I'm in like the lobby of the hotel getting like breakfast or something. And Reed comes up to my table and he's like, I got some bad news. And I'm like, shit, I already knew he was going to tell me, right? Like he missed weight. So he's like, uh, Charles missed weight. Um, I don't think the commission's going to let the fight happen. And I'm like, why not? Cause he, he missed weight by so much the commission almost didn't let the fight happen yeah um i told reed i was like listen i didn't come down to mexico for nothing i'm fighting so you know go tell the commission that i'm good i'm ready to go i'll fight the guy i don't care how much how much over he is so reed went back and and talked and then the fight was still on so uh luckily we still got to fight and um that was, a, that was another good fight. You know, Charles came out hard in the first round. He had me in some trouble in some spots. Yeah. Um, I fought out of a couple submission attempts. And then second round comes in. Uh, we're exchanging on the feet. I'm landing a couple things. He shoots in for a double leg and takes me down. I reversed it really quick. And then he's trying to scramble back up to his feet. I dropped into a guillotine. And he was playing possum for a little bit. But that thing was – it. I knew it was in. I was like – he was kind of sitting there.
0: When you had it in, did, did you have – did you have you, – some people bring the arm over the shoulder. Did you bring the arm over the shoulder?
1: No, it was an arm-in guillotine. So nor, normally when people bring the arm over the shoulder is when it's a no-arm no guillotine, yeah, when they just, just have a I hold of the neck. Yeah. So I had his arm in it. Um, Which
0: one do you think is, like, more
1: – I like arm-in more. No. I, feel like, I feel like the no-arm ones are easier to defend unless somebody gets that high, okay. that high elbow.
0: if I should switch my shit up because I literally go for if I go for a guillotine, I'm always
1: going for just the
0: over the shoulder and just get at least one. Now, how important is it to get? Do you do you need to get both legs, or you don't
1: need to? No, like when I when I submitted Charles, I didn't have full guard wrapped around him. And when I submitted uh, Bermudez, I wasn't full guard either. Actually, I started off and kind of um, you know knee across the belly, and then this one over the top. Yep. And he tried to roll. I ended up in mount and finished from mount on Bermudez. Yep. And then with Charles, I was in the kind of the same position, kind of like shin on belly, this leg over the top. And then I pushed off the fence to get a little bit more of an angle. Yep. And then that's when I squeezed, and then he ended up tapping. So.
0: And then when you have just the arm in, you, you don't really need to do anything excessive when you have an arm in guillotine. I mean, it's just getting that guard in place.
1: It's... There's a lot of like little details that that I feel like a lot of people don't do in guillotines like um, some common mistakes that people make or at least it doesn't work for me is they'll get in a guillotine they'll lock guard up and then they stretch the person out're
0: supposed to come in exactly
1: when I get a guillotine I climb my guard up as high as I can I ball up really tight yeah and then I I flex my lat muscle on whatever side his head is on right so I flex the lat I do a side bend. And then I try, I try to. I always tell people put your elbow in your pocket. Yeah, and that's how you crank that guillotine. Like so you a never snake. want. Yes. Yep. So I like compress everything in. I never like put. I'm never stretching people out and pulling on the neck. I'm always cranking everything okay. in.
0: It almost becomes more like a crank.
1: It's a. Cho- sh- it's definitely a choke. Yeah. It's a choke. Yeah, for sure. But if
0: you're stretching out, do you, you feel like it's more like a like a crank or it's still a choke if you're stretching stretching everything out? I
1: feel. I feel like. People feel like it's a cho- – and it can, it can choke. It can choke. You know what I mean? But uh, if you're sweaty and the guy is sweaty oh, and he's, he's got grease now. on his face and you're stretching like this, Especially the head Especially with those fat-ass gloves on. Yeah, yeah.
0: Absolutely. So you guillotine Oliver. Now, did he take a shot? Or how, how did you – How did I get the guillotine?
1: Yeah. He shot in and, and actually finished a double leg. So he okay. was, And he got kind of lazy. And uh, there's a sweep that I do that I kind of made up on my own and I hit it on him and ended up on top and uh he like went to kind of referee's position in wrestling and I was kind of behind him and then as I was behind him I reached over the top of his head and dropped into the guillotine as he was assuming I'm assuming he was trying to get back up to his feet
0: damn next fight I got is Elkins 2018 yeah Elkins Argentina you were in Argentina yeah and you finished it looked like an elbow
1: it was it was some ground and pound. I hit a few elbows on him, and then some hammer fists, and then the ref just stopped ground it. ground and pound. Yeah.
0: Now, what was that fight to you? Just another.
1: That was um, me and Elkins used to train together. Okay. Um, back in the day, um, I would see him out in Indiana. Sometimes I'd go out and and train with this team out there. Elkins would come, so like, and we would actually practice with each other. Like I'd roll with him and stuff like that uh i always had a lot of respect for him i always knew how hard of a worker he was um and you know it was a fight that like you never want to fight someone that like you know or that you're friends with or whatever but in this business it's hard to stay away from that you know if that's a fight the ufc approaches you with you got to take it or your family doesn't eat you know so um it was it was hard fighting against kind of like a friend and a former teammate but you got to put feelings aside and you know, at the end of the day, I know that he's going to go in there and, and try and hurt me just yeah. as much as I'm going to try and hurt him. So, you know, we fighters can be, know we, it's business. I it is like. a hundred, yeah, it's not for sure, for sure. So I was like, well, we can be friends again after the fight. Yeah. So, and I knew how tough he was and how durable he was. So I, when I finished him, it was late in the third round. Yeah. Um, I've seen a lot of guys fight him and they have him hurt or they think they have him hurt. He battles through it, and they end up, like, punching themselves out trying to finish him. Yep. And then they're just gassed after that, and then Darren comes back and takes over and will win the fight.
0: That happens, like like we were talking about with jujitsu. Like, I've noticed that happen too. Uh, is like, you you know, I'll, I'll notice fatigue with too many, like, e- e- not even, like, attempting submissions, just defending submissions. Like, my arms will start to fatigue. Yeah. With, with punching, I'll also notice, you know, when you, when you spar for a little bit, you're maybe i just don't know what the fuck i'm doing but, but <laughs> no for sure like fatigue you know what yeah. I mean, your muscles it's like you, your heart might want to keep going but like like you said it's like especially if, your you're, if you're if you're
1: if you're clenching yeah so that's why you got to stay relaxed right they say that you, you don't clench your fists until you punch okay so everything's got to stay relaxed otherwise like have you heard of like uh people riding motorcycles and, and white knuckling, you know, they're yeah. squeezing on the handlebar so much that they like burn their grip out. Yep. It's almost like what you're doing in the gloves. If you're, if you're tense the whole time, like yeah. balling up your fist, so you got to stay more relaxed.
0: You got to cue, cue uh, your boy, Bruce Lee, be still. That's right. Cue, like, <laughs> Dude, I used to, I used to watch a little motivational clip from him like every day when I first started. Yeah. Here. He
1: was, he was ahead of his time, you know?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Incredible. Um. Now, your last fight, I didn't. I didn't get to completely finish. This is about as far as I got to study up is 2020 it's when you retired. You hated it essentially because you, you retired during COVID and and you wanted to, obviously you want to you wanted to go out on a now I think you went out on a dub though yeah right so and fight out, of the night fight of the night went out on a dub down in Vegas. So there's pros. There's pros to that. Now, who did you fight and what was the result of that fight?
1: I fought, uh, he was a newcomer to the UFC. Um, so I was supposed to fight Ryan Hall, who okay. was, uh, you know, the heel hook expert guy. Yeah. He'd just do Imanari roles the whole time. And it was like the maybe the third time we were supposed to fight. We were supposed to fight earlier in the year, yeah. right when COVID came. And they ended up canceling the event. Um, they rebooked us. Uh, and then he got injured again. So. I was scr- they were scrambling around trying to look for an opponent for me. This was maybe a week before the event when he when he yeah. called in about his injury. Like I was getting ready to leave. I think I remember I was like doing my pre-covid test uh to to fly out or whatever. Um so then they were scrambling around, they were sending me options and options and, and I was like, you know, we're sending them back okay, this guy, this guy. And then they're like, okay, Bill Algel. And I was like, all right, fine. So he was, uh, he was a tough guy. He was in shape cause he was just coming off a fight a few weeks earlier. So it's not like he came off the couch. So yeah. he was, he was ready to go. He was still in shape and he brought a hell of a fight. You know, it was his chance to go in there and show the UFC that he deserved to be there. And even though he lost, he did, he did show that he deserved to be there. And, uh, he caught me with some good stuff. He smacked me with a knee right on my chin in the second round that, you know, turned me around. I didn't know where yeah. I was for a second. Um, But just kind of being a veteran and being experienced and having fought out of danger before, I was able to battle through that. I came back in the third round and and made it like a 10-8 round. I dominated the third and then ended up winning a unanimous decision, and we got fight of the night also on top of that.
0: Dope. So that's dope. What does the future look like for you? What are the future goals, vision? You run a UFC gym in Naperville. Do you do anything else outside of that?
1: Not right now. Um, I mean, I do little things here and there. Um we do I do like UFC preview shows uh with this channel called Stadium that they're at Studios in the United Center. Okay. It's like a streaming sports channel. So it's me, CM Punk, and uh the host of the show, Dave Ross. Um, so we do those usually for every pay per view event. I'd love to get I'd love to get into more stuff like that or like color commentating. Um and then also, you know, with the gym, I I love it. I love being in the gym every day. I love teaching guys. Yep. I'd love to build up some of these fighters and get them into a big show and, um, you know, kind of live through them a little bit. Vicariously live yeah, through them. Yeah, exactly. Like, Listen, e- even though I'm retired, I still have that itch. I want to go back every day. You know what I mean? How often but,
0: do you still roll and, like, do you spar every day. at all? Every day. So oh, just roll or do you spar also? Both. Okay, dope. So do, who's, like courageous enough to like step in the ring with you
1: a bunch of my guys are yeah man. They, yeah they love it you know they uh they'll they'll come in they'll try and take it to me every time
0: you go all out or you just kind of reciprocate what you get i reciprocate get yeah. i reciprocate i so tell people all there, the
1: like time a... hit me as hard as you want to get hit back yeah <laughs> <laughs> so and some people don't don't learn that lesson but they do after the rounds over
0: oh hell yeah yeah so, so you ever have anybody come in there thinking like oh i'm fucking coach up today
1: <laughs> i've had uh, uh yeah i've had I've had some some things I even feel a little bad about. I well, I had one guy throwing up on the mat after a round yeah. because he got a little too too happy with with his power and and I even gave him a chance. I was like walking towards him covered up and he like kept hitting me harder and harder and harder and like a minute and a half had passed and I said that's enough. So I go in and when I go when I go after you, I'm not trying to knock you out. I'll yeah. give you I'll like drop you with a leg kick or I'll drop you with a body punch. Yeah. So I dropped him with a body punch, and he was like laughing on the ground like, oh, those are good. I go, no, no, the round's not over yet. Get back up. So I made him get back up. I dropped him like two or three more times. On the last time, as soon as I hit, he just started spewing vomit out of his mouth all over the mat, all over the side of the mat, and then I made him clean it up afterwards. So oh my God, Don't mess with the
0: coach. Don't mess with the
1: coach. It reminds me of the uh, – what's his name? Um Christopher Walken. Have you ever heard that quote that he's got in movies like uh, talking about a, a lion in Africa and it's so hot and the little, the little, the little cubs are nipping at the lion's feet, and from
0: from the Lion King.
1: No, it's not from the Lion King. It's from a different movie. But basically, he's saying that like the cubs are nipping at the lion's feet, like and then the other familiar. animals see this and they start taking advantage of the lion and eating his food. Yes, until one day the lion just rips the shit out of everybody. Yes, and he goes because sometimes the lion has to show you who he is, yes. or like who the king of the jungle. <laughs> That's you what gotta I think. Be,
0: you got to be careful. You know what I mean. You mess with the wrong guy, and they'll, they'll put you in a heel hook and injure leg for a couple years. No,
1: that that that's a little harsh. You can't mess with that stuff, man. Yeah. Like, like I said, a nice hard leg kick where you fall, or a body shot. You yeah. know, you'll get up from that.
0: That's that. Yeah, that, I guess it's. A little but ridiculous. tearing somebody's
1: knee apart with a heel hook is not not a good thing.
0: Have, now, when I was going to ask, when you roll against aggressive leg leg game guys, what what is? What's your go-to? Do you just try to stay away from getting entangled don't, in that?
1: Yeah, don't let them control the ankles. Um,
0: Are you nice? I mean, obviously, but, like, some people that you have, a, like, is your game built around guillotines opposed to, like, I feel like everyone's got a niche once they're, like, high level in jiu-jitsu. Like, hey, this is my niche. I build up. My setups all
1: kind of correspond. Gi- to guillotine is my best submission. Okay. Yeah, and there's a lot of different spots that I hit it from. There's a lot of setups, and there's a lot of variations of the guillotine that I do. Yeah. So I can get it from almost anywhere on the mat. Um, and, you know, ever since coaching and stuff like that, I've been – and this was something that, like, uh, my sensei made me do too, is, like, being a wrestler, I'm used to being on top. Like, yeah. I always wanted to be on top. And my coach in Miami would, like, force me to start on my back against yeah. guys just so I can get better from my guard. And uh, I feel like I'm really good off my back and and setting stuff up. So um, – Guillotine is is my is my best submission uh, but guillotine darce I, I do with tons of chokes so like yeah. anything attacking the neck I love attacking the neck um, I'd say those I, are my best I feel ones It's
0: like the only only darce I ever try to go for and I always get stuck in north and south or whatever the hell it is is yeah. when 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 the opponent's got like side guard on you and you kind of like cross face and then come up under underneath yeah to try to finish with the darce Yeah ghost and, escape yeah, I always get stuck though. Yeah, yeah. I always get stuck in there. But uh this was dope. There's some things I want to finish up with. Favorite movie?
1: Oh my god. Well Scarface was one of them for say, sure. Yeah, Scarface gotta be Yeah, Yeah, hundred percent. Um
0: anything outside of Scarface.
1: I like all of the I mean it's kind of along the same lines as Scarface, but all the gangster movies, yep. you know, Goodfellas Casino, Donnie Brasco, have you seen Carlito's Kill the Waves. Irishman? Kill, no it I was seen that it one was yet. in
0: two, it was made in 2011 and it it is a great it's about the union mob and everything like that in Cleveland phenomenal movie it's yeah. it's uh there's another one the Irishman I think it's really similar that one came out more recently and I think that's Hoffa's, uh and that's more Chicago Chicago okay. later they one of them's on uh prime video the other one's on uh Netflix I think but yeah. both phenomenal movies um favorite food
1: um it, that's a toss-up it's a three-way you know, Mexican food, Cuban food and Peruvian food. If I've you've been to Peru. Oh,
0: have you? I went to Lima when I was 16 for That's a uh, awesome. missions trip and that was great exposure as well to just like what what's possible, what's out cuz I was in the slums of Peru. Uh-huh. The most happiest people with absolutely nothing. Nothing. Yeah. nothing just mud huts and they ha- and simultaneously with having nothing they had everything. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like there was just a consistent pureness to everything the food was phenomenal it was like different food than, than yes, did. like it was the same food but it was like they have a wasn't. they
1: have like a japanese influence on their cooking yes yeah. so like uh their ceviche is almost like a sashimi yep. you know like their fish ceviche they do a lot of stir fries yeah yeah there was and, a lot of stir fries yeah so
0: it was like parrots in the streets and shit it was, yeah it was dope dude it was a, it was a it was an awesome that's experience. on the
1: bucket list i definitely want to go to peru one day
0: loved it i loved it we got to tour a little bit too but uh most part it was it was for the missions trip so, do you have a favorite restaurant?
1: Um, what are we talking? Fast food?
0: Uh, probably just like if you had to like just favorite in general. If it is a fast food place, whatever, just a favorite restaurant.
1: You know, being being from the Chicagoland area, like Portillo's, Portillo's. was Everyone was a huge one. That. growing oh my god, have you had it yet? Or once, or twi- once, I, once or twice. Once or twice. I
0: don't know. It's all right.
1: What What do you get when you go there?
0: I don't. I Door Dashed it. I don't know oh, if I, I should have went in person. Because DoorDash obviously brings down your yeah, value of Yeah.
1: And then the fries aren't fresh, you know, yeah. if you get a delivery. I haven't
0: stuff. had a true Portillos experience. Okay. So that's something I definitely need to do. <laughs> yeah, it's something I definitely need to do. Um favorite do you have a favorite book? Some people aren't into reading, but some people maybe you have a favorite book.
1: I re- I read a few books um by this guy, Sam Sheridan, that I liked and, and one was uh A Fighter's Mind. Yeah. And he like did interviews with like different athletes of like combat sports or wrestling and stuff like that and kinda dove into how they think about competing and stuff like that. Like I'd recommend that to anybody who's who's in MMA. Yeah. Um because MMA is really it's mostly mental. I mean definitely physical. You gotta get ready for your fight and stuff. But yeah. if you if you don't have it up here, it doesn't matter how strong you are in the body, you're not gonna Absolutely you're not gonna be successful.
0: I got one or two more questions. So I think the the next would be what's your favorite memory just of life up until this point
1: um my kids having my kids yep. yeah so yeah got i got three, i right? got three yeah i got three and it's not like one single memory it's just kind of the collection yeah. of memories that i have with, with them kids. with my kids um you know that's that's the meaning of life to me you know yep. is uh is is having children having a family taking care of them creating those memories with them and you know to me that's worth more than anything in this world
0: absolutely and then kind of the theme of the uh, the podcast and, and the hoodie and everything just kind of overcoming adversity which you know as a fighter that's that's something you step in the ring you got to overcome that every single time but really just with life everybody faces and fights adversity what's the hardest adversity you think you've had to overcome uh up until this point in your life um
1: hardest I, battle I've, I've i've had a lot i've had a lot of mental battles you know i've had a lot of of camps where I've had like a family member pass away, like I mentioned, my grandmother passed away, yeah. my grandfather passed away in another camp, um, uh, a brother of mine passed away early on in my career, uh, but you know those those are hard to to fight through. You but it almost it almost gives you a little bit of extra motivation to do it for them yeah. in their memory. Um, as far as adversity. I think the biggest adversity I had to come overcome in my career, it was at the end of my career. My second-to-last fight, I uh, suffered. I lost. I suffered two fractures in my jaw. So I snapped my jaw here and here. had to get four titanium plates put in. And, you know, I had been wrestling with the idea of retiring for a while, Um, basically ever since my fight with, like, Jason Knight, which was before Charles Oliveira, I think, right before – Uh, so I was like, you know, I don't know if I want to do this anymore, but, but like after, after getting my jaw fractured, it was something that I did not want as the final part of my career, Yeah. but trying to come back from that, like when, when you suffer a loss and then a loss like that, where you like go through surgery and, and you're basically not the same and like my, my bite isn't the same anymore, you know, ever since that, um, Mentally to come back from that was, was very tough, but I had to prove it to myself. I had to prove it to everybody else that I'm not gone yet. You know what I mean? That I'm going to come back. I'm going to show everybody that you can come back from this and you can win and, and you can still keep going if you want to. So that was like my main goal was to come back from that surgery, show everybody that, you know, shit happens, but you can come back from it. Uh, and I did. And you know, that's when I fought Bill Algeo and, I put on a hell I told you that, you know, he clocked me right right on the chin with a knee. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I was like, oh shit. And I I, I was worried about that. I didn't know how my jaw was going to hold up after after being fractured like that. Yeah. So I was worried about, you know, what if he lands a good shot on me and just puts me out? But you got to take that out of your head and you just gotta fight through it. So I got hit with the good knee. I battled through it. I came back. I won. And everything everything that happened in that fight, the fight itself, winning fight of the night, winning the fight. My post-fight speech kind of went kind of viral in the in the Cuban community, uh, Cuban community, uh, Cuban American community, um, and kind of dedicating my fight to them and to, like, my dad's fight for a Free Cuba. Everything was perfect, and, like, that's why I was like, you know that's what, what it it's, just, it's it's time to, to hang it up now. The only thing that I could change if I could is I wish it didn't happen during COVID that it was in an empty arena. I wish there was a, a crowd there. Cause it was weird. Like I was involved in fight of the night, but I didn't know it because we didn't have the reactions of the crowd. Yeah. Like there wasn't like oh ah like you 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 know when you're in a good fight, with that the reaction of so the weird crowd. The yeah, adjustment. but it was just like dead silent.
0: That had to be so weird. It was. It was like very A sparring weird. match, I guess. Yeah. It almost feels like. Um. Uh, well, where can people find you? And uh, anything else you want to shout out? Um. Uh, that that you're affiliated with, business-wise, or just anything at all. Oh.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can find me. Instagram and Twitter at Ricardo Llamas MMA. Uh, you can find me at my gym, uh, UFC Gym in Naperville. We're off uh, Royal St. George Drive and Ogden Avenue. Um, you know, and I don't know if a lot of people know about UFC Gym, but it's not, it's not a fighter gym. We're a very family friendly gym. Yep. Um, we have a youth program that starts at four years old. 99% of our members are never going to step foot in an octagon or, or a ring to fight. They're doing it to get in shape and we love helping everybody of all walks of life and all ability levels so you know come on by i'm there every day i'm there monday through saturday sunday's my only day off so let's go uh they can come by there and and learn from me directly
0: let's go what it takes (laughs) so thank you again ricardo alamas and have a blessed day brother
1: you too man